From movie set to multiplex, it's the business of film with James Cameron Wilson. Have you ever heard of the 39 Steps? No, what's that, a pub? Gentlemen, you can't fight in here, this is the war room. These guns you laugh in. I'm shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on in here. You're winning, sir. Oh, thank you very much. Oh, one of my favourite moments in all of film. This is Simon Rose, and I'm joined for the business of film by James Cameron Wilson. As ever, James, presumably sleepless night for you the other night watching the Oscar ceremony? I watched the Oscars from 10 o'clock to see who was on the red carpet, or indeed Mm -hmm. if there was a red carpet, Mm -hmm. and it overran by one hour, so it ended at (laughs) 4.40. So I was oh. in bed. I was in bed before six. H- how about you, Simon? No, I have never stayed up ever. I I used to get up early to see what had happened, but no, I've never done. I have friends who, well, you perhaps you in the other days, uh, you know, organised parties to watch the thing. Um, but no, I mean, it, I can never remember the exact Johnny Carson quote, but it's something like two hours of sparkling entertainment crammed into five hours. How many hours was it then? Well, the I followed ceremony. the Sky coverage from 10, and I think it actually began at 1, 2, 3, 4. So it was only 3 hours, 40 minutes. So I felt a bit short-changed this year. <laughs> yeah. Uh, mine, from what I read, um, even one or two of the, uh, uh, the nominees weren't actually awake uh, to watch it, uh, well, including, including one who won. Um, but we'll get to that, no doubt, in, in due course. So how well, do, how do well, we start what I on love, this? What I love about watching the Oscars all night are the production numbers, the witty banter of the host, mm. the reaction shots of the audience, the mistakes, and the speeches of the winning best actor and actress. Last Sunday's ceremony had no production numbers, no host, no audience to react, and was pretty much error-free under the meticulous direction of Steven Soderbergh, Mm. who had promised a movie-like version of the event. Well, apart from the opening credits, which were movie-like, it pretty much seemed like any other ceremony to me, albeit a more intimate affair, much like the original shows of yore. The main event, as you know, was hosted at Union Station. Yes, why? Do we know why? They needed more space to accommodate social distancing. Ah, okay. So they had a hall that had been decked up into a five-tier affair with tables for the nominees and their guests to sit around, complete with fancy lampshades embossed with images of the golden statuette. But due to COVID restrictions, only 170 guests were allowed in the hall at any one time and were shunted around off camera to mm. suit the occasion. Um, and, and, I mean, were there still trains running? I didn't hear a single rumble. OK, because you can't think, you know, if somebody said, well, I'm going to do the BAFTAs from King's Cross or Waterloo, you would sort of wonder what happened to all the commuters. I don't know. Maybe they have massive rooms at the station that don't get used most of the time. I don't know. I'd find it very odd. I would quite like to know. But more important, of course, is what actually happened. Well, indeed. Uh, uh, having said all that, I think the sheer sense of history surrounding the occasion made it an unforgettable event, being the first show broadcast from a multitude of locations across the globe, including Sydney, London, Paris, 
Berlin, Rome, Prague, and other hubs are, I can't recollect. You I mean London, dis- London, England? Did they put London, England when they came to London, as they do in so many movies, well, which are made in Hollywood, or did they actually realise that people might know? London. Good gracious, that. what progress. I, I know. <laughs> But uh, following the calls for diversification within the academy, the two leading acting categories were expected to go to Chadwick Boseman for his mm. final role in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and to Viola Davis for the same film, neither of which prediction came to pass. Instead, Oscar went old school and bestowed the top thespian prizes to previous winners, to Anthony Hopkins for The Father, who at the age of 83 is now the oldest acting recipient of an Oscar in history, beating Christopher Plummer's win for Beginners by one year, Plummer being 82 at the time. Hopkins also goes down in history as being the actor to win his second Oscar with the longest gap between his first, which is 29 years, following his 1992 win for The Silence of the Lambs. And as you know, Best Actress went to Frances McDormand, who previously won for Fargo and three billboards outside Ebbing, mm. Missouri, making her the only woman in history to have three Best Actress trophies. As Catherine Hepburn actually won oh. the honour four times, many pundits on the night claimed that McDormand had achieved Meryl Streep's living record of three wins, forgetting that Streep actually won her first Oscar in the Best Supporting category for Kramer versus Kramer, and then two Best Actress wins for Sophie's Choice and The Iron Lady. McDormand now matches Daniel Day-Lewis for a living star with three statuettes in the top category. More history, of course, was made with Daniel Kaluuya becoming the first black British actor to win an Oscar for his role as Black Panther activist Fred Hampton in Shaka King's Judas and the Black Messiah. This will probably stick in the craw for David Oyelowo, who wasn't even nominated for his sensational portrayal of Martin Luther King in Selma, and for Idris Elba, whose critically acclaimed portrayal of a West African dictator in the Netflix pickup, Beasts of No Nation, which was likewise completely ignored because, according to analysts, the Academy disapproved of spotlighting a film that was screened simultaneously online and in cinemas. However, since then, of course, Netflix has become the saviour of the film industry. And this year won more Oscars than any other distributor out of 36 Oscar nominations. My, how things have changed. But the big historical win this year was, of course, Chloe Zhao, who became only the second woman in history to win an Oscar for Best Director and the first woman of colour to do so for Nomadland. Still were, Catherine, Catherine Bigelow, I'm trying to remember. Yes, indeed. For the yes, hurt, okay. Hurt yeah. Right. okay. Yeah. There were some highlights, though, uh, such as the comic Lil Rel Howery quizzing guests on which songs had or had not won Oscars or even been nominated, with Glenn Close coming up trumps with her encyclopedic knowledge of the go-go band EU's The Butt knowing who wrote it, 
what movie it was in, i.e. Spike Lee's School Days, and why it wasn't even nominated. She then performed a boogie to the very number, almost guaranteeing her an Oscar <laughs> nomination at next year's awards. And of course, she's now joined Peter Toole with having the most nominations, eight in the acting category, without ever winning. It's, and talking it's sad, of... sad, though. Oh, I know, I know. But uh, she's young yet. <laughs> and talking of Glenn Close, she also made history. Um, yeah, uh, she got a Razzie nod for the same performance <laughs> which she was nominated in Hillbilly Elegy. You should explain what the Razzies are, James, for those who don't know. Okay, they are, they are the antithesis of the Academy Award in so much they, these are awards that go to the worst performances. Uh, the Golden Raspberry year. or something, I think? Yeah, it's the Full Golden name, Raspberry. Yeah. And I, I, I haven't really studied the, the Razzies <laughs> this week. I know Rudy Giuliani uh, won, I think, Best Supporting Actor, and uh, Maddie Ziegler uh, won for her role as an autistic woman in Sears' uh, film Music. Because sometimes actors do, I mean, this year may be different anyway because of the um, pandemic, but sometimes actors do actually turn up at the Golden Raspberries to receive their awards. Uh, I know, Halle Berry. Rather good sports. Yes, I remember. And she, she was a big shot. I don't know what she was yes. looking like. <laughs> I, I think the most striking sartorial ensemble was won by Kerry Mulligan, who wore a gold Valentino creation of such volume that nobody could get near her, which was maybe the point for social distancing. And... Yes. I had been waiting patiently for five years for the ex big acceptance speeches, and Frances McDormand uh, turned up, um, very unexpected. Everybody thought it would either be Viola Davis uh, or Andrew Day, who won the Golden Globe, or indeed Kerry Mulligan. And Viola Davis won the Screen Actors Guild. So this was a real surprise, although I did sort of predict it because it was the favourite when we last talked. And she went up on stage and she said, and I repeat verbatim, I have no words. My voice is my sword. We know the sword is our work and I like work. Thank you for knowing that and thanks for this. Mm. Uh, we didn't get any blubbing uh, uh, like Gwyneth Paltrow or Halle Berry. Mm. She was very straight and that was it. And, of course, we had a great acceptance speech for Best Actor last year from Joaquin Phoenix. And it went to Anthony Hopkins, who was in Wales, visiting the grave of his father. Well, asleep at the time, though. Uh, presumably, yes. yes. And so we had no speech from him. Yeah. And I think the Academy, the reason they moved the awards around, because usually they end on Best Film, they thought, well, there's going to be such an amazing outpour of emotion for Chadwick Boseman mm -hmm. will put best actor at the end. Yes. And it kind of ended on a damp squib, really. And that what's, was it. what's quite interesting is it sort of answers the question we've often asked, you know, do the organisers actually know who's going to win in advance? And clearly, in this instance, they didn't, or they wouldn't have arranged it that way. Precisely. And I think that, yeah, that answers your question. They don't have any idea until that envelope is opened. No. It is very high on security. And of you course, sort think... of wonder why they didn't pre-film acceptance speeches from everybody. It's not, you know, almost everybody must have used some form of video conferencing system uh, during the 
pandemic. So they could have got that quite easily. But anyway, easy to, to say with hindsight. I just looked up, by the way, just before we move on um, about the Razzies. Paul Verhoeven accepted for Showgirls, so as well as um, Halle Berry. And uh, Sandra Bullock, wonderful, um, oh, turned up for a, for a film that I never have seen called All About Steve. Is that right? Um, okay. you, perhaps you haven't seen either, but there's probably good reason. I think for that. I avoided so, that. Yes, yes, I wonder why. Anyway, well, of course, the good. best acceptance speech was um, Jung Yoo Yun, mm. or best supporting actress, which I now realize is called uh, Minari. And I've been okay. calling it Minari like everybody else. Yes, you're reminding me now of uh, the Goon Show takeoff of Quatermass and the Pit, in which they found um, voices going Minardor the whole time, which was apparently, it was a lost London Underground tube train and it really meant mind the doors. Um, okay. Sorry, okay. James, I'm completely off track there. Okay, well, that's fantastic. Um, let's uh, then move on and uh, see uh, what movies you've actually been watching um, this week. Oh, I didn't mean to press that at all, James. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. And not as slick as the Oscar presentation, I'm afraid, James. But at least you're there to actually tell us what you have seen this week. You have, you may have noticed that I've reviewed a lot of very strange movies of late. <laughs> well, interesting, unusual. Yes. Indeed. So it's yeah. with a sigh of relief that I turn to Joe Penner's Stowaway, a thriller set in outer space. It seems one of the most normal films that I have seen in a while. Right. Penner is actually a guitarist and a huge YouTube presence, but made his directorial debut in 2017 with the survival drama Arctic, starring Mads Mikkelsen. Stowaway is also about survival, but with one additional cast member who has the title role. I knew nothing about the film other than it was set in space and was pleasantly surprised on a number of levels. I will say that it's about a two-year mission to Mars and the commander is an Australian woman, Marina Barnett, played by Tony Collette. Because of reasons of space, i.e. legroom, uh, there are only two other crew members, the earnest biologist David Kim, played by Daniel Day Kim, and Zoe, a medical researcher, played by Anna Kendrick. It's a bumpy takeoff recalling the early scenes in First Man, in which Ryan Gosling played Neil Armstrong. Mm. And Kim ends up vomiting into a bag. The women are made of sterner stuff. In fact, off the top of my head, I cannot recall another space mission drama in which there wasn't a single white male astronaut. The title is a bit of a giveaway, and I'm not inclined, inclined to reveal more other than to say that Stowaway is almost unique in sci-fi cinema for a number of reasons. It's really about what it is to be human, a circumstance accentuated by the close quarters of these professional people who are the best they can be, being intelligent, caring, and highly qualified individuals. But what happens to that, that dynamic when you add in the threat of mortality, particularly when the raison d'etre of the mission is to preserve life 
for future generations. Stowaway, which is written by Penner with Ryan Morrison, and they collaborated on Arctic, would actually, it would make a terrific play as the camaraderie and claustrophobia are so well captured by the script. Jeez, you, all... don't see, you don't see many sci-fi plays, do you? You don't. Now you mention it. No, no, no. And yet the claustrophobia of a cabin, you would think, would be absolutely ideal. Mm. Well, I there we are. Should so, something to keep us going during the second year of the pandemic. Well, it's almost a dreamlike experience watching the film. And mm. I was so caught <laughs> up in it that I was terribly shocked and a little disappointed when it ended after just 107 minutes. I should also explain there's 10 minutes of credits, as they usually are for sci-fi films. <laughs> yes. I, I, I felt I was only halfway through, which I suppose is a huge compliment to Joe Penner and his cast members. There aren't that many grown-up, intelligent space dramas around. I, I can think of Silent Running, Moon, Solaris and Gravity, and I expect Stowaway will garner something of a cult following as time goes by. It's not entirely satisfying. I felt a little shortchanged by the ending, but I'll be very happy to see it again sooner rather than later. And you can see it now, Simon, on Netflix. On Netflix. OK, thank you, James. Um, yes, it's a, not often you say you wish a film had gone on longer. I can't actually recall the last time you did. Um, so when I was quickly having a look, see if there, I could find any um, sci-fi plays, but uh, um, no, the Carol Capek, the Czech dramatist, did uh, coin the word okay. robot in his 1921 play, R-U-R. Um, but yes, yeah, going back quite a long way. I'm sure, there'd been, I'm sure there'd been others. So and how, do you fancy, how, how do you fancy a post-apocalyptic action adventure? Well, I think it depends whether it's any good or not, James. In the new Netflix release, Love and Monsters, the end of the world is precipitated not by a pandemic, nor, a, nor by a nuclear arms race, nor by male impotence or environmental catastrophe, nor even an alien invasion, but by an asteroid called Agatha. <laughs> well... Not so much the asteroid, but as the way mankind deals with it, blowing it up and unleashing a torrent of radiation that mutates every cold-blooded creature on the planet, from crickets to crocodiles. Within a year, 95% of the world's population has become lunch, and the rest of humanity has moved underground into colonies in bunkers, precariously connected by diminishing means of technology with other bunkers. Luckily, our young protagonist, Joel Dawson, played by Dylan O'Brien, is a bit of a dab hand as a radio ham, and after 90 attempts, has managed to connect with his girlfriend, Amy, who appears to be just 85 miles away. Mm -hmm. It's taken Joel seven years to locate her, and he has thought of little else since he last saw her seconds before his parents were squashed in their car by a giant bug. But 85 miles is a long way to go if every hidden insect can smell you a mile off. Mm. When Armageddon struck, Joel was just 17, but now he's 24 and is determined to prove his manhood. So armed with just a crossbow and a whole lot of chutzpah, he sets across an expanse of California, that looks suspiciously like Queensland uh, to see if he can re 
be reunited with the love of his life. Love and Monsters, directed by Michael Matthews, the South African director of the award-winning Five Fingers for Marseille. No, I haven't heard of it either. Uh, starts exceedingly promisingly. And for a slice of dystopia, it is surprisingly upbeat. As Joel says, it's not as bad as it sounds. Really, it's a group, great group of people, and we all love each other. It's kind of what I imagined college would have been like. Joel is also fortunate in that his bunker mates are extremely proficient survivalists, and because they rely on Joel to cook up a mean minestrone, they forgive him his lacklustre attempts at battling the invading creatures outside. But Joel is no longer 17 and is determined to prove his manhood by setting across the wilds of Queensland, uh, I mean California, without a second thought. Much of, much of this is quite fun, although after some time listening to Joel talking to himself as he navigates his way around mountain and jungle, his incessant chatter underlined for me the fact that Dylan O'Brien is not Billy Crystal. I think the film would have benefited from a little more realism and tension, which in turn would have fed the laughs, for it just gets sillier and sillier. There is some welcome distraction with the introduction of Michael Rooker as a grisly woodsman come survivalist, accompanied by a tough young cookie, delightfully played by the 13-year-old Ariana Greenblatt, who is obviously a star in the making. Remember that name, Ariana Greenblatt. She's terrific. I will tell you no more other than to say that the film has been described as a John Hughes take on Mad Max. You know, one of the biggest laughs I ever remember in a cinema was during the first screening in London of Alien. I can't recollect what we were all laughing at, but the atmosphere was so taut in the auditorium that the humour activated an escape valve release of laughter. Here, it's just silly for silly's sake. The monsters themselves are quite fun, and they recall some of the more idiosyncratic creations of Ray Harryhausen. In fact, Love and Monsters even got itself an Oscar nomination this year for Best Visual Effects, although the award predictably went to Tenet. After all, there wasn't a whole bunch of big-budget CGI films around last year to choose from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Love and Monsters itself was meant to have been released 13 months ago, but we know what happened there. Interestingly, another film to be nominated for Best Visual Effects was the comedy adventure The One and Only Ivan, which also featured Ariana Greenblatt, Everything is Connected, and Sam Rockwell, who, of course, was in Moon, which was one <laughs> of the really serious, grown-up, terrific sci-fi movies. Now, I believe, Simon, you've been seeing something. Oh, I've forgotten all about that. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I was just going to say, my, my son has seen um, uh, that film. He recommended it to me. I'm not so sure after hearing what you say. But yes, something that is very cinematic, but was actually on television instead, um, originally, I think, on uh, AMC, but was on BBC recently, The Terror, uh, which is now out on Blu-ray, DVD, and digital, and it stars Jared Harris and uh, Kieran Hines, and is sort of based on a real-life um, expedition in... Uh, the 1840s, trying to find the Northwest Passage. Um, I mean, the true story is that we know these ships went missing, um, and well, you don't know what happened, but it combines it with a sort of horror element. There is some sort of creature stalking the crew. And although you don't actually 
always believe that they are as cold as they're supposed to be. You don't always see breath on the air. It is just absolutely for a sense of, of mise-en-scene. It is just brilliant. You never know where it's going to go. I think it's 10 parts, the series, but I found it absolutely um, fascinating. Fantastic acting, well, as you might expect um, from those people, but I would recommend The Terror strongly if you missed it. I don't know, it may still be catch up on BBC, but I'm not sure it is. Um, but it is now out, and that's certainly one of the best things I've seen for a long time, along with some friends who sort of ended up, we all sort of were watching it together. Uh, by the end. Um, so, James, that's it for this week's uh, Business of Film. But James Cameron Wilson will, of course, be back with more the same time next week. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. Shirley.